to welcome everybody that's with us tonight, wherever you're at around the globe, uh, picking this uh, feed up. All those of you that will get the uh, podcast here in the next day or two, we welcome you. We're going to be back in the book of Revelation. I know a lot of people are on the road doing different things this time of year, but uh, we've got opportunity and access with the video feed. We should not allow that to take the place of being in God's house, but uh, we, it's a welcome thing if you can't be here uh, for whatever reason. So let's pray, and then we're going to get back into Revelation chapter 2. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've not left us in the dark. If we would be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and, and spend time in your word, that we would not be in the dark. And we thank you, Lord, that you have been long-suffering to us. We ask you, Lord, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us to be more like you each day. And as we learn of you and as we learn about your plan for, the, for each one of us, for the church, for the world, for all the systems in this world, Lord, we just pray that it will cause us to be more like you and it will motivate us to share the gospel, Lord, so that we can lead others to the cross that they might be saved. And Lord, we thank you for this time we have together and we thank you for what this season means to us us to recognize the gift of your Son, the greatest gift that any of us will ever receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So we got a little bit into uh, Thyatira last week. We'll just go back and pick it up in the beginning. There are seven churches. <clears throat> These churches are kind of almost in a horseshoe. This one, Ephesus, we already talked about, and Lay, Odyssea. And all these churches were in order just like this. So when John was writing this or getting it from the Holy Spirit, from the Lord, these churches were in, in the order you see them there in the text, they are in the order just like this all the way down to Laodicea. We know there were at least three more churches in the area. So God singled these seven out. And seven's a great number that God enjoys. Seven means basically completion is the best uh, definition for seven. Perfection is another word we use or term, but things are complete. If you look at God's, um, if you look at His plan through the prophets and certainly the book of Revelation, uh, you can see how much number seven is important, starting with creation and then going into the... Uh, the uh, book of Daniel that we spent a lot of time in getting started, 70 times 7, 70 uh, sevens were determined on their people, 490 years. So all of these sevens are important. So God singled these seven churches out. Two of these churches <clears throat> were only praised. God just commended them. Two of these churches were only rebuked. They, they didn't get any con. Uh, commendations and the other three got a mixture of that Ephesus was uh, the first one we talked about they got a mixture uh, the next one was Smyrna they they didn't get a rebuke they were uh, under heavy persecution the two churches that struggled with the world and getting anything done were the two richest you're gonna see that tonight they had a lot of wealth. They had a lot of material things. The, you know what the accumulation of stuff in this life means? Nothing. <laughs> Just means you're going to have maybe a good life here, but it doesn't mean nothing spiritual. And the two richest churches were the two that were the most in trouble. Uh, 
they got rebuked. They only got rebuked, which was Sardis and Laodicea. These churches <clears throat> seem to represent the church age. Uh, as you kick off the church, doing well, but kind of losing its zeal, getting caught up in the mechanics of it with Ephesus. And you make your way around these churches to the last church before Laodicea, Philadelphia. That church had a powerful revival. And that's when we had a lot of our revivals was in the 1800s and the early 1900s and back into the 1700s with George Whitfield and, uh, and Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. It takes the Holy Spirit to do something. You can have the most dynamic guy around, and he, if he's not anointed by the Holy Spirit, it's not going anywhere. Washman Nee said, you can tell all the good stories you want to, but until you use God's Word, you're never going to touch a man's spirit. That's, the only, that's what separates the soul from the spirit is the Word of God. And so if you go back to the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and early, just barely into the 1900s, that's when you had that Philadelphia church where the church at large around the world was experiencing revival and people were coming in by the droves. But after, and we can speak to this from our own personal history in America, after the 1920s, things started going downhill fast. A lot of people blame the 1960s for America's woes, but I, it started at least in the 1920s. And in the 1920s, materialism became really the height of life for a lot of Americans. They got caught up in all kinds of stuff. Entertainment really got big in the 20s. And progressive education came out. And that was that it's a kind of something that started creeping back up again. They Notice how they repackage and relabel everything because they want more acceptance. So it's the people who say, it's my truth. Truth is not something that stood alone. That's what this progressive education started tampering with. We grew up, our country grew up under the, the reality that God's word was supreme, right? And, and they started veering off of that, especially in the 1920s, when this education movement started, when entertainment got big, materialism got big. Americans were rich in the 20s. And then all of a sudden, this education said, truth is, is what is valuable to me, not something that stands alone. And see, and I, I won't get into that tonight, but that's now we're looking at a Laodicea church age in our country. And you got churches individually and people, Christians individually, that, are, that fit in these modes. You know, when you read these seven churches, you should be real with yourself and say, you know what, that sounds like me. You know, if, if you could say, spiritually speaking, I feel like I go to the church of Ephesus. You know, I've left my first love. You know, Jesus is not the main thing the way he was early on. Or maybe you're under some level of persecution for whatever reason. Maybe you're uh, in a different church, but you ought to be real. And then we have churches represented by these churches in our country and in our world. Certainly, Stephen is a heavily persecuted church. I talked to him this week in Nigeria, and uh, the rebels have come back in, and they've killed a lot of people. I think he said they've killed 40-some around their village there. And so the Lord still protected them so far, but uh, I, we don't know what that's like. The only persecution we know what's like are if somebody talk about us on Facebook. 
Come on, can I get one amen? amen? I'm not going back to church. Who do you think don't want you at church? The devil. <clears throat> the devil don't want you at church. And if you want an excuse, guess what? He'll find you one. He, he's good at that. He wants, so we're in, a, we're in a church age where uh, we've gotten lukewarm as a group. That don't mean you have to. It doesn't mean individual churches because we've experienced revival here in the last two and a half years. And we're thankful for all that God's done by way of salvation and all he's doing here with their building and stuff. So we've been experiencing revival, but we don't want to lose that. Now, to, I feel like I need to follow the Holy Spirit here. Let me just do this, all right? Uh, churches uh, are like vineyards. So when you grow, guess what? The Lord comes in with shears. Now, I could not understand why my grandmother would plant strawberry plants and pluck the blooms off. It bothered me. I wanted to eat them. And but any new strawberry plants, any first year strawberry plants, she had a patch big enough to rotate. So any first year plants or runners, as we called them, and she would transplant the runners. Right, they run out in the middle of the road, so you didn't want to destroy them. So you would transplant. Then the first year you pluck the blooms off. Now that seems counterproductive, right? Uh, if you're a young boy. And you know how good a strawberry is. You're thinking, that don't make sense to me. But as you grow and understand the process, you want a strawberry the size of a nickel? Or would you rather have one the size of a half a dollar? You know, that's the process that takes place with pruning. Not just strawberries. I just use that for an example. Y'all, you that's worked in the orchards and fruit trees and all that kind of stuff, you understand that, right? You prune that stuff. So that's what happens to churches. If you're going to be a healthy church, you don't just, you got to be pruned over time. And that's what God does. This is His church. It's not yours. It's not mine. This is His church. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. He didn't say, I'm going to build the Methodist. I'm going to build the Baptist. I'm going to build the Pentecostals. Or I'm going to build Matthew Robbins, a nice church. He didn't say any of that. He said, I, upon this rock, the revelation of who he is, when Peter said that to him, right? He said, you got it, Peter. You understand who I am. The revelation of who Jesus is is what the church is built on. If the church is not built on the revelation of who Jesus is, it needs to close its doors. If it's built on any other reason than that, it don't need to be open. And so Jesus Christ said, upon this rock, speaking of him, he is the rock that followed him in the wilderness. He is the rock that he speaks of himself about if you fall on the rock, you'll be broken. If the rock falls on you, you'll, uh, it'll, you'll be destroyed or crushed. So the revelation of who he is is who the church is supposed to be built on. So Jesus takes care of his church. Parenting is hard. Right? And notice this. We're, we fell into a generation. It's easier now to give them a cell phone than it is to parent them. Come on now. And, and we're, going, we're losing ground fast with that. You know that? And you, I, don't, I, I don't care what you say. And my wife's in, this, in that element, in that part of the culture. Children are different as a whole than they were 40 years ago. I tell teachers all the time, if they'll cuss their mom and dad out, you're not an exception. 
You know, some of the stuff that go on these schools, it's, it's, a rough, it's a rough place in a lot of situations anymore. But a lot of it comes down to the lack of parenting. And we know the toll, the separation, the family's taken on our culture. We understand that. And then parenting, it's easier just to give the child its way sometimes than it is to discipline them and keep training them. That's a challenge. But do us all a favor and train your children up. Do, do the people around you a favor. Train them up. Teach them to, in God's house. Teach them to put God first and all that. And that's, those are the things we're going to be. I love having the first day of the year being on Sunday. I love that. Because we're going to come in here. It's going to be game time. We want to kick it off right. And I want to challenge all of us, myself included, with some things that, that, that the Holy Spirit's been laying in my heart for us to start in this year. We're running out of time. The, the night is coming. The day is far spent, I think is how Jesus put it. We're running out of time. And so we need to understand we are that terminal generation. We don't know the day nor the hour, but we know the season, Paul said, and Jesus both. So we're living in that terminal generation. That terminal generation started when Jerusalem was no longer in the control of the Gentiles and went back under the control of the Jews. That was 1967. That kicked off this terminal generation. Here we stand on the brink of these last, this last generation, and we need to make sure we redeem the time, like Paul and Jesus both told us in the New Testament. Redeem the time. Now, these seven churches, some of them were doing that, some of them were not. So Ephesus had lost its first love. Uh, Smyrna was under heavy persecution. Pergamos was under a lot of persecution, but they were getting caught up in the world. And we talked about them last week pretty extensively, Pergamos. The Bible says this was where Satan's seat was at, right? His seat was here. Do you know that the reason that was referred to, and I did not bring this out last week, was because this was where one of the government strongholds for Rome was at. And so the government was getting control of religion and everything. And so now this church had satanic things going on. Excuse me. This city had satanic uh, temples in it, things that were uh, against God. They have this government that was working against God. All of this and these, the people that were in Pergamos, they were commended for hanging on. Uh, now, also in the church of Thyatira, which will be the fourth church, we read uh, some of this last week, but let's go back to verse 18. It says that the messenger or... The angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These things. Now, let me say this word angel can be messenger. It can be used for a supernatural being or a messenger in the natural. And they understood this already in the 1800s. They understood that it wasn't necessarily a supernatural angel. We have plenty of that in the Bible to know there are supernatural angels at work. And we talked about that Sunday a little bit. These things say the Son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. That's judgment. When he, when he presents himself that way, he's judging. Now, the first judgment that you feel um, when you are born again or maybe you're a Christian and you sin and you feel judged, you get judged by God's Word all right, and His Holy Spirit or what we call conviction. But you feel that judgment. You feel that separation, right? Now, in, in the Greek, there's a word called krino. 
And that's the word that we translate to judgment, all right? That is a temporary thing. It'd be like getting put in jail for 30 days and your, your judgment's over, you're out, right? If I take this suffix that we call it in English and put it on cot- and make it katakrino, then I take a temporary position and make it permanent. In other words, that's eternal judgment, right? If, I, if you are katakrino, then uh, that's, the, that's your destiny set, right? That's what he's talking about when we talk about being separated from God, uh, in hell, eternal judgment, punishment, whatever. Now, the Word and the Spirit convict us or judge us, right? Paul said in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, when he was dealing with communion... He said, if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't have to be judged. That's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. One of the greatest verses in the Bible where God said, if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't have to be judged. I mean, that's a beautiful verse. The Holy Spirit is at work bringing uh, conviction into our lives when we do wrong because it's God's desire for us to do right and for us to repent. His whole design, so the Spirit and the Word come in agreement, and they don't want us to fall under God's judgment. And that's why when we're going the wrong way, they're used to convict us, God's Word, to judge our actions, if you can have it, right? I've had this happen in 30-some years over the years in my office. Some of you have heard me say this, maybe all of you. Somebody will come into my office and say, I've sinned and I feel horrible. And I say, great. <laughs> because if you can sin and not feel bad, we got a bigger problem. See, that's what conviction's all about. When we fail, we should feel that pain, right? And that disappointment and that separation. And everybody says what the preacher believes. So you can throw us in the trash on the way out if you like, or you can maybe give us some thought. When Jesus was on the cross, we, knew, we know he had no sin. He was perfect, sinless. He didn't know until, I believe, somewhere on that cross, because he voiced this. Remember when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We'd never heard anything like that out of him before. Because he was one with the Father, right? So somewhere on that cross, we've got a perfect lamb who's never sinned, been tempted in all points like we were, Paul said, but never had sinned. Sin causes separation, right? When we sin, we feel that awkwardness toward God. And I'm just trying to follow the Holy Spirit tonight, all right? When we sin, we feel that awkwardness, that conviction. We see where the Word may judge us in that situation right there. We feel the weight of all that. Well, all of our sin had to be laid on Him. It had to be. The Bible taught that. So somewhere on that cross, I believe Jesus, all of the sins of the world that had ever been or ever will be committed were laid on Him. And at that moment, He felt for the first time what sin does to the rest of us. I feel that. That's why we have a Savior that's felt and been everywhere we've been. He didn't sin. 
His actions never were sinful. But he, all of our sin had to be placed on him. Can you imagine his connection with the Father? Because he's not only a son, he's the only begotten son, right? And so for the first time, he feels the separation that sin causes. That's why we feel that way. When we sin or miss the mark is what the Greek word means. When we miss the mark and we've done something wrong, we feel that. We feel that little bit of separation. And I share this with people a lot, and it's really an eye-opener if you think about it. When you read the first, gospel, the first, uh, first John, which I preached from two or three weeks ago, when you read that, there's no question that you can be forgiven. I mean, it's as clear and cleansed from all unrighteousness. A lot of times people will stray or back away from God, and then they'll be gone for a season, and they'll come back, and they'll repent and they, they still don't feel like they did before, but it has nothing to do with your forgiveness. If you believe and you confess, the Bible says, you shall be forgiven. But it's about intimacy. When a, when a relationship has been breached, the forgiveness can come, but it may take a while for that relationship, that intimacy to be restored. You can compare that even in the natural. With people, when they have a, a rift in a relationship, and somebody may forgive one another, but it may take a season for that intimacy or that relationship to be restored. So now, and that's how the devil gets a lot of people discouraged. It's not a matter of whether you're forgiven or not. If you confess your sins, he says, or me, whoever, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrest. Period. But the problem is is the relationship gets messed up a little bit, right? God's not awkward, it's us, right? Right, and we feel that. Just like the prodigal, right? When he come home, he'd done all kinds of crazy stuff, right? And he's not alone, we've all been prodigals. But here he comes home, and he's got the perfect attitude of humility. He just comes to the father and says, Hey, I'm not worthy to be your son, just let he come home exactly like he should have with humility. But he felt that, right? He knew he had done everything against his father. He'd blown it all, all the money, everything he had. He'd come back really broken. He'd come back really beat down. But notice how the father treated him, right? He jumps off the porch, says, no, this is not happening. We're going to kill the fatted calf and all that kind of stuff. Bring the ring, shoes, all that. But still... You know that that young man, when he went and sat in his bedroom, had to think, can this be real? Can, can this be real? It is real. His mercy and his grace is mind-blowing, isn't it? This, the thing that has made me so, my mind has been blown the most with, having walked with God most of my life, is his long-suffering. It's really... We've never met anybody that way. There, are, there is nobody that way. As long-suffering as God is. And we're going we're gonna to prove that right here. Look what this church did. It says, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience, who pominate, are you hanging in there, your endurance, your consistency. As for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So this is one of those churches 
get both sides. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Those are the two downfalls of any organization or nation. Once a nation or an organization gives itself over to sexual immorality, then it'll go into idolatry, and then it'll collapse. That's why America, I think, is in trouble. I used to, until I read Isaiah again, really studied it 15 or 20 years ago, I used to say sexual immorality was the last straw before a nation was judged. It's not. It's idolatry. And the reason, if you read Isaiah and take your time reading it, you'll see that. Because when people get involved in sexual immorality the way this nation has, the way our world has, but we know our own nation, we have cities and and situations that are known just for their sexual immorality. We have bars and hangout places. Just They're identified by their immorality all over this country. That's how they're identified, by their immorality. Shops and different things, it's all about immorality. But when you get caught up, and now we've got people in this country that are advocating for it to be okay for adults to be sexual with children. That's going on in this country. But it had been coming for a long time because in the 1980s or 90s, there was a court case in Colorado where a female lawyer argued for a man who had raped his six-year-old daughter. She argued that because she was his daughter that he had the right to do that. Now, if that had been argued in a court 50 years ago, they'd have took them outside and put them in jail or something. Run them out of town, flogged them, whatever. But we've come a long way in a hurry. And so we, we, when you see all these things happening, once you get so engrossed into sexual immorality, like this nation is getting, like we've read about and seen in other nations, then you've got to, because your conscience is so conflicted, Right? There's no way to make it right for a 40-year-old man to lie with a 6-year-old child. That is gross in any stretch of the imagination. But when you get caught up in that kind of stuff, you got to find a God that's okay with it. And that's when the idolatry comes in. Because you're so immoral that you, don't, you detest yourself. Has anybody read... Now listen. The statistics that the homosexual community puts out themselves, it's mind-blowing. The average lifespan for a homosexual male is the late 30s. They put their own stats out. It's horrific. And you'd think that they could judge themselves and say, this ain't working. Right? And so we, what happens to a nation that's given over to sex and morality, and we've went way, when you start bringing children and stuff into the mix, you, we've went way outside the boundaries. We're in trouble. This nation's in trouble. And now we've let idolatry things come into this nation. We let them build uh, temples to foreign gods all in the name of democracy in this country. And God told his people not make agreements with people who worship false idols, not military alignments or trade agreements. We've done all that. Now, why we think we can overcome that by our own strength? You know how we would overcome that? Repentance. It's mind-blowing that it's that simple, isn't it? 
And, and so you and I have to do that on individual levels. That's how we overcome Satan and the plans he has for us is through repentance, right? He, he has a plan that he'd like to destroy uh, uh, nations and people and individuals. That's what he did by setting up Jezebel in this church. She's in there. She teaches them to get involved in sexual morality and then to idolatry. Notice how merciful God is. He said, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. But he did. I mean, he gave her space to repent. And most people would not have. Right? How many of us would have said, uh, it's the day of Pentecost, the kickoff of the church for the whole world. Let's get the guy that denied Jesus three times to preach. Let's let him be the main speaker. Nobody would have done that. But God is merciful and long-suffering. Peter, just 50 days before, or 50-some days before, acted like he didn't even know Jesus. Cursed, uh, denied him three times. And the Holy Spirit said, That's the guy we're going to use 50 days from now, that guy right there. And instead of getting mad about it and saying, why didn't he pick me? We should rejoice because we're a sinner like that too. We've treated God wrong. We've denied him, right? He's asked us to do something or we've acted like we didn't. That should cause us to rejoice that God is so long-suffering that he would say to Jezebel, hey, Would you repent? If you will, I'll receive you. Manasseh, uh, Jewish history says, if you read the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, it does mention that this was part of the equation. It talks about people being sawn asunder, right? Jewish history says that Manasseh, who ruled like 50-some years, longer than all the good kings, he was a knucklehead. He was evil. Jewish history says he was the one that put Isaiah the prophet in a hollow log and cut him in two. And you know what he did at the end of his life? He'd, made his own, he'd sacrificed his own children to false gods. At the end of his life, the Bible says he repented and God forgave him. I tell you, you and I have got the best deal going. To have forgiveness available to us no matter what we've done. I mean, that is beautiful. And for him to offer this to Jezebel, then look what happens. It says, uh, he says, and I gave her time to repent. She did not. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed. Who's going to make her sick? Jesus. This is in red. He said, I'm going to put her in a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her. You know what God told Israel? He said, don't be going down to Egypt and doing the same thing they do with these false gods because if you do, you'll get the same diseases they got. That's what he said. I know I wouldn't get very many amens on that. Because we don't, we don't, in this culture, we don't want no connection between sickness and sin. We don't want to hear that. But the Bible connects them. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed, those who commit adultery with her. And that doesn't mean, let me clear that up, because I know people will run with that. That doesn't mean it's always the case. But anytime you face adversity, the first thing you ought to do is take inventory. And say, God, am I good with you? Because I want to know where my attacks are coming from. I told you all 12 weeks ago, I think yesterday, 
what happened to me was God's gift to me. Right? I, I really believe that. What God's doing inside of me since then, it's been His gift to me. But when I go into, and it's not the first time I've been in adversity. That's been a, that was a big one. But when I go into adversity, what I want to know is one of three things. I want to know if I've opened the door for this. If God took me down this path to train me and teach me. Or if it's just a flat out attack from Satan. I want to know what's going on. Why? Why would I want to know that? Because my posture will be different. Right? If it's something I've done to let the enemy in, a simple prayer of repentance might fix it. You get it? How, how good is that? If it's something that God's leading me down, like he's done this last 12 weeks, and teaching me and doing some stuff inside of me, then I don't want to kick against the pricks like Paul did. You get it? There's a reason why when adversity shows up, it don't mean you have to submit and say, oh, what have I done? Just take some inventory. Get along with the Holy Spirit and say, now, what's going on here? I want, I want some understanding. I want to know, have I opened the door for Satan with something I've done or not done? Have, is, is the devil, have you allowed the enemy just to have uh, come at me and attack me? Am I in a season of being attacked? Or have you brought me down this path to teach me and train me? Because all three of those are a little different posture, right? If, I, if I'm done something to let the enemy in, then I need to repair that breach and maybe repentance will do that. Right? If I've not done anything and the Lord just said, Hey, I'm taking you down this path because I want to take you to another level. I want to teach you some more things. I want to show, I want to empty you out a little bit more. Huh? Less of you and more of me. Right? That's a lot of things I'm experiencing right now. Or is it just a flat out attack from Satan and you need to stand your ground, rebuke him, and not budge an inch? So there's a posture we take when we're in adversity. Just be real about it. Everybody that's sick, it's not because they sinned. But some people it is. What did he tell the one guy? He said, go and sin no more. He, had been, he was sick, right? Or crippled. He said, go and sin no more lest a worse thing come up. That was Jesus. That was in the New Testament. I'm sorry to disappoint you. So there's sometimes, not all the times, there can be a connection between sin and sickness. So just find out. Just go talk to Jesus. Sometimes it's just something that got passed around, has nothing to do with the devil, has nothing to do with God. He just uses everything, but it has nothing to do with you sinning. But just because your posture will be different, and you'll know how to position yourself for spiritual warfare, for prayer time, so that you're not just out there. What, what did he say in James? He said, you pray, but you pray amiss. You don't receive what you're praying for because you're just praying amiss. You don't have any understanding when you're praying. So I take inventory regularly. That's just who I am. I take inventory regularly because I want to know what the Holy Spirit's up to in my life. I want to know what Satan's trying to get done against me in my life. And I want to know who I am. And you know who knows me better than I do? <laughs> the Holy Spirit does. So there's a reason why you need to take inventory. You may be able to get up from prayer and say, it ain't got nothing to do with what I was doing. That's fine. You didn't cause it. You didn't bring it on. That's great. That's good news. That's encouraging. And you may say, hey, God just told me 
he's saying he's taking me down here to train me. Or he told me it's uh, an attack of Satan and you can rebuke the devil and stand and stand your ground and not give up any ground. But you want to find out why, where the attack's coming from and why it's coming. Then he says, I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know. And let me back up. I will cast her in the sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent. Now look at this uh, of their deeds. So he's trying to get them all to repent. But then he says there's consequences, right? I will kill her children with death and all the churches will know, shall know that I am the, he who searches the minds of the hearts and will give to each one of you according to your works. So all of us are going to have to stand before the Lord someday and give an account of ourselves. So take advantage of repentance. Amen? It's a good thing. Now to, uh, to you and I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. So there are people that are staying true, right? You're going to be in the minority if you're a true believer now. You're going to be in the minority in this world because many are going to destruction, Jesus said, and few are going to heaven. So you're going to be in the minority. And it won't always be easy to stand your ground. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes, there's that Greek word from Nike, Nikeo, means to gain the victory. He who gains the victory and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations." He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. I also, have, as I also have received from my Father and will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So the, the, the Holy Spirit picked these churches on purpose because they define for us, I believe, spiritual problems in everybody's lives. Things that you're going to face or maybe deal with. And he, he talks about endurance a lot. Notice how he talks about that. <clears throat> he who keeps my works until the end. The next church is Sardis. And this is another one that was a rich church. It says, These things says he, the first seven spir- who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We'll, we'll get back to the seven spirits in our study later. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. They are ready to, that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast, and repent. He's trying to get them to repent. This particular countryside or, or city, they had water that had gold in it. And they were panning for gold back in those days, and people were getting rich. And they became a very wealthy city. And it rubbed itself off on the church. said, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know the hour that I have come upon you. You have a few names uh, that have not defiled their garments that shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So it's hard to keep people faithful to God in a culture that is full of materialistic ways. There's always something more important than God. And And we don't register it that way, do we? We don't say... I'm choosing this over God. We just keep putting God off. And pretty soon, God's in the back seat. And then the next thing you know, He's in the trailer that we're pulling. Because these other things become too important to us. A man's life does not consist of the things he has. His life is about his relationship with his Creator. 
So these people were very wealthy. They, they were rebuked, not encouraged at all. He's, other than these few folks that are staying true to God. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, but I will not, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Serious business. Paul said, Demas, having loved this present world, this is one of Paul's main guys for a season. But Paul said, Demas fell back in love with the world and left him. And we got to be careful where the balance is at for us to engage the world and not always make God play second fiddle to that. If you come to church here on Sunday and Wednesday and maybe a Bible study, you'll be gathering with God's people maybe four hours a week. It's important. And uh, Paul said in Hebrews, he said, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and do it more as you see the day coming. Talking about the end of time. So now is the moment we see the end coming. We're going to need strength from each other. We're going to need God's word imparted in us. We're going to need to praise him. We're going to need to be filled with his presence, his Holy Spirit and his word. So that we can stand and take this stuff out there. So you think about it. You know, I know some of you grew up going to church every day of the week. And I think the church, we, over, we overstepped our boundaries years ago. We, we, we didn't give time for the family. But now what's happened? It's went the other way. We're in a situation now where, and I, I've been doing this a long time, so I don't want to be uh, overly critical, but I know people that may go to church once a month now. That's not doing what Paul said. He said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and to do it more as you see the day approaching. So the, the, the family's important, but that don't mean the church is not. And God cre- and I know a lot of people use this excuse, and, it, and it's a good one. <laughs> God created the family before the church. Yeah, but he created the church too. It ain't like they have to compete with one another, right? They should complement each other, right? Don't, you, know, you know, if you pick family every Sunday, I know we all have functions and things that take us out of town and all that. That's fine. I understand that. But if you do it every Sunday, if you always pick your family over God's house every Sunday, and there are people that have fell into that over the years. And now... You know, what has become a blessing in so many ways with us to be able to have this feed that goes around the world can also be a heart uh, curse for some folks because you can get comfortable. And that's what's happening to these churches, especially Sardis and Laodicea. And so he says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. He says, if you guys, if you'll stay with me, he said, I will not blot your name out from the book of life. And then he says in the next church and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, uh, they need a good church up in Philadelphia, sounds like. They have all kinds of trouble up there. These things says he who is holy. That's interesting how he introduced himself there. He who is true. He who is the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's open. Now this church, Philadelphia, is like Smyrna. They're not going to get a rebuke. In fact, 
this church here in Philadelphia is having revival. But let me tell you, Smyrna and Philadelphia were the two most persecuted of the seven churches. And they're doing the best. They're the two that were getting persecuted the worst, the hardest, and they were doing better than the other five. And the two that had enough money to do whatever they wanted to do, and then some, they were doing the worst. They got caught up in the world. And, and so he says to the Philadelphia church, he says, He who has a key of day, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's open, no one opens. I mean, that's a powerful word he's given to this church. I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And I, I, as I've gotten older, I don't, I don't try to kick doors down. I ain't interested in that. If God ain't opening it, I don't, I don't want to go through it. I don't want to go through it. I'm not going to wrestle and fight about it. I don't want to go through it. And I, I believe God will open every door that you and I are supposed to go through. And if, he, if He's not opening one, don't stand there and cry and whine and feel sorry for yourself. Get to moving. Find the next door. You know what the worst thing we can do as Christians? Feel sorry for ourselves. The devil loves it when we feel sorry for ourselves. I've said before you an open door, no one can shut it, for you have a little strength and have kept my word. Man, that's the guy I want to be right there. I, I, that's what I, if I die before the Lord comes back, I want them to be able to put on my tombstone, He stood for God's Word. And have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. And he's pretty... Hey, this is the second time this has been brought up. And I will say there is a movement in our country, in America, where these people that are actually Gentiles are running around act, calling themselves Jews. And we're part of the same family as the Jews... Uh, and we got grafted into the same tree, but you're a Gentile if you're not Jewish and a natural. Nothing turns a Jew off like an Indian out west to come in there and act like you're something you're not. And uh, uh, he says, he says, I, Indeed, I will make those of synagogues who say they are Jews or not, but lie, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. So there's a big movement with Judaism again, just like Paul had to deal with, that's why he wrote the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians. If you're going to live under the law and try to hang on to the New Testament, you're going to have to rip the book of Galatians and Hebrews out of there. You can't have Galatians and Hebrews and actually the front, of, front end of Ephesians and live under the law. And so he says, I know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. So like a little reference to that tribulation period we've talked about. To test those who dwell on the whole earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that, you, and that no man may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem that comes down in heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. And, and you know what? Don't study that. Don't waste your time trying to figure out his new name. He didn't give it. Study something else. I'm not going to talk to you about that or debate you. He's got, you're going to get a new name? I don't know what it is. It might be Gumby. <laughs> and he's going to have a new name and he's going to put it on us. That's all good with me. I don't have to know all that, right? 
Be careful not to chase rabbits that are not in the path. Right? Get, stay, stay focused. Stay focused. Those things are going to be grand and glorious, but sometimes He don't reveal to us everything. And if He don't reveal to you everything, if He don't put it in the Scripture, then hang on, man, and keep waiting. Then he says, he says, he overcomes, I will make him a pillar. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So these churches were picked out for a reason, so all of us could learn. Then he says, the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm... And neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Another one of those churches that's focused inward, right? Not outward. Now, these guys had a lot going on. But the first thing I will tell you is they had hot and cold springs around Laodicea. And those hot and cold springs were not close enough to the city, so they built viaducts. To bring that water down to the city. Well, guess what happened? The hot water got warm, the cold water got cold, or got uh, uh, the hot water got cool, and the cold water warmed up. So when you're making ice have, you have to have liquid, you have to have gel. All that's important for the process of that. So if the cold water gets warm by the time you get it to where you need it, and the hot water gets cool, then it's of no value. Jesus is not saying here, and this has been horribly preached before he's not saying i wish you were evil or good but not somewhere in between it's not he don't want anybody to be evil it's not his will that any would perish these people understand what he's talking about they they know they're they're known in the known world at that time for their eyes and their eyes have actually had healing properties for the natural man in it so it was very uh that's part of what made these people wealthy is because they had an ISAB that actually worked. And so they had to, uh, instead of viaducting the water in and out like that, they had to, I guess, figure out a different system or carry the water or move their plants, right? What do they do a lot of times? You move a plant, like for natural resources. One of my buddies I played ball with in high school has a water bottling company in Sevierville, Tennessee, and he built the plant right over top of the spring. He took the plant to where the spring was at instead of shipping it two or three times, right? And so they, they figured out a way to keep the hot water hot and the cold, cold water cold because if they viaduct it down to the city, it was lukewarm. Both of them were lukewarm. They were no good for the process. They understood what Jesus was talking to them about. Because, and so this probably got some of them's attention. He went on to say, he says, uh, because you are, ne- you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know uh, that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And I think that's a problem in America. And we've got to be careful about it even in the church, that people judge that they're okay based on their material position or the amount of money they have. Now, I don't, I don't want to bring this up because I don't know the guy in any kind of way other than the fact that we all know the name, R.J. Corman didn't have enough money to keep himself from dying. Now, I don't know what kind of guy he was. I don't know if he's Christian or not. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that name, R.J. Corman, 
we all associate with being one of the richest guys in this whole region, right? And he didn't have enough wealth to keep himself alive. I was talking to somebody that knew him, and he went all over the country, right, trying to get help medically, but he didn't have enough money to do that. You, and, and I'm not even saying, I'm not saying he lived that way. I'm just saying our wealth is not a, a protector against anything. Sol, Solomon said that it can, your wealth can make riches and fly off. And you know what? Every time I go in the grocery store now, that's exactly what happens. This <laughs> is flying off, right? <laughs> and so we all know what that's like. And he says, uh, because he says to these guys here in Laodicea, you think you're wealthy, you think you don't need anything, but you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The word blind really stuck out to these people because they were big into the eye business, right? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined and fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed. They probably had the nicest clothes. They were a rich city. They were all wealthy and blessed in the, in the financial category. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eyes that you may see. And he's talking to them in spiritual language here now. But that, if you look at this church, whom I believe represents the church age we're in now, because we are a lukewarm church as a whole, doesn't mean you have to be, or I have to be, or even this local church has to be. Just as a group around the world, the church is lukewarm. But he's talking to them in things they understand. And he's saying, hey, this lukewarm water, don't cut it. They knew it didn't cut it, right? They knew that. But they were so caught up in their own life, they weren't getting any spiritual lessons taught to them. So Jesus targets them and says, here's the lessons you can learn from your own dilemmas. He said, you need some real ISAF. Now, I'm going to take you back to, uh, let me read the rest of this, and I'll take you to John. And I'm going to turn there. I'm just going to quote something to you. He says, no, these guys didn't get uh, any uh, coming, didn't get commended. They're just getting rebuked. He says, that you need to be, get, uh, that you may see, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He loves these people, but they need to repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne and also overcome and sit down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every one of these churches had opportunity to repent and be right with God. And some of them were walking with God, so they were commended. He talks about their eyes. That really probably caught their attention. Who knows how many people turned to God after this message was given to that church in Laodicea because he really hit right. And he did that with all the churches. Thyatira, they knew what he was talking about. Ephesus left their first love. They knew what he was talking about. They all knew what he was talking about. These letters were pinpointed toward them, but they're lessons for all of us. Now, Jesus wants all of our eyes open. We can all get blind spots, right? And he wants us to see reality. He wants us to see truth that he gives us that stands alone, right? Not truth that we make fit us, but we come and fit the truth. In John chapter 9, there's a story there where Jesus heals a blind man being born blind from birth. I love this story. It's better than anything Hollywood's ever put out. 
he comes out and, and uh, he gets healed. And uh, everybody's tore up about it. The religious people are tore up about it. His own mom and dad are messed up over it. And they say, so they said, who healed you? And they said, he tells them who healed him. And they said, ah, oh, we don't know this fellow. And they're mad about the whole thing, right? But here's what they said about that. His own mom and dad wouldn't verify it because they were afraid the religious crowd would kick them out. So they hung their own son out to dry, even though they knew he was blind from birth and now he could see. That's what we can't do. We got to stand for the truth no matter what. But there's an interesting statement said there in that passage. It says, Not since the foundation of the world have we seen one born blind and healed. You know, Saul went blind later on. So evidently there had been some of that that had went on, right? But they said, Not since the foundation of the world had we seen one born blind and then have their eyes open. I believe God reserved that. that now we, we've seen that since then. God has done that since then. But that was the first time. I believe the reason that was reserved for Jesus to do first. Is because it typifies. What he was going to do for all of us in the spiritual realm. Every one of us are born blind spiritually. And Jesus is the only one that can heal that. So our eyes are important. Now think about this. We, we know how messed up our culture is with debauchery and evil. And so your eye can be a gateway from the media to whatever to bringing all that garbage in, right? We understand that. But your eye can also bring in <clears throat> unbelief, doubt. You can get to watching the wrong people. Or listening to the wrong stuff long enough. And you can start getting down and, and not believing the way you should. So be careful. Keep the right salve on here. Amen? Amen. So that you can see. I can see properly. And embrace the Holy Spirit. He is the best way to live in this life. Amen? Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to be in your word. Now thank you for the Holy Spirit and how you're at work here tonight. Lord, none of us are without sin. We can't throw any stones. But we know that you are a long-suffering God. We know that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that the only way our eyes can be open is through you. We know that, Jesus. Put the eye salve from heaven on us. We don't want to be lukewarm. We want to be useful. Lord, the hot water and the cold water were both useful. You weren't saying you want somebody to be evil instead of this. You were saying you wanted us to be useful, us to be beneficial in your kingdom. Let us be that, Lord. Give us the strength in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.